Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning, church. Well, yeah, my name is Sean, as you can tell from Lonnie over there. Uh, And I am one of the pastors on our team, and I am excited to talk through some serious theological stuff with you today. So hopefully you came prepared to learn. You got your thinking caps on, because we're going to go deep. But before I do that, a few notes of business. First of all, how about Ellie Kent up here singing? Oh, that was amazing, huh? Huh? You are no longer allowed to go to college. You'll be leading us in worship every Sunday instead. That was awesome. So glad to have you up here. And then uh, two weeks ago, we had Jer Swigart preaching. Last week, we had Pete Santucci preaching, stepping up and preaching. We are so fortunate to have folks who are gifted communicators who are really a part of our community and congregation here at Antioch. They are folks who regularly worship with us and are involved in the life of the church. Next week, we are going to have the first of six guest speakers of kind of outside our congregation to help speak into our community. Michelle Jones will be with us next week. Many of you have heard her here at Antioch before. And we'll have a few other familiar faces, a few other familiar voices. Uh, We'll also have some new voices and some new faces coming to teach us, to challenge us, and to encourage us over this summer season. And as we prepare to hear from these voices, whether they're voices that have been here before or they are brand new voices, uh, we want to take a moment to encourage you to come open, to come willing to learn, to encounter God in a new way. The speakers who are coming are intentionally diverse, ethnically, denominationally, geographically, theologically. So there might be some folks who come in that maybe think differently about you, about a specific topic or idea. Uh, And if that's the case, not necessarily going to be the case. We encourage you to have an open mind, even if you don't see eye to eye on every issue. And we hope that you'll experience God and experience Jesus in a new and a profound way because of these folks coming in. So that sound good? Great. Okay. This morning, we are kicking off a very exciting season in the church calendar called Ordinary Time. (laughs) Who doesn't love being ordinary, right? How was that new restaurant you went to? It's pretty ordinary, you know. Ah, your kid's pretty cute. Yeah, she's ordinary. No, right? Uh, ordinary is just a funny word, right? It's used here in the church calendar to talk about the time between Pentecost, which we experienced last Sunday, and then the first Sunday of Advent. Again, the marketing department could come up with a bitter, bit better name here, but it is tough because it's compared to these other uh, seasons in the church calendar that uh, have important themes that we are much more familiar with. In Advent, uh, we await the coming of Christ. In Christmas, we celebrate the arrival of Jesus. In Epiphany, we proclaim that Christ is manifested to the world as Savior. During Lent, we prepare for the death of Jesus on the cross, and we even experience it throughout Holy Week. In Easter, we celebrate Jesus' resurrection, and we complete the cycle of Easter last week with Pentecost, with the coming of the Holy Spirit. This ordinary time that we find ourselves in, and it's actually called ordinary times because it comes from Latin for like ordinal, like ordinal numbers, you know, one, two, three, four, five. It it, it refers to a series of numbers because each week in ordinary time tells you how many weeks it's been since Pentecost. Today is the first Sunday after Pentecost. We'll have the second Sunday after third Sunday, all of that. 
Uh, but what this season means is it's best understood as how we, looking at how we live out our Christian faith and, and the meaning of Christ's resurrection in our everyday and, for the sake of the season, our ordinary lives. We'll be looking at different biblical accounts from the Gospels that take us through the life of Christ that will hopefully inspire us and equip us to live like Jesus each and every day. The first Sunday in Ordinary Time is also called Trinity Sunday, which we'll be talking plenty about today. And the last Sunday is called Christ the King Sunday. So on this journey from Pentecost all the way to Advent, it is our hope to grow and to mature and to look more and more like Christ. You'll see behind me that our moss wall is back. It's uncovered during the other church seasons. That's because the color associated with ordinary time is green. And that emphasizes our growth in Jesus, of, of growing into maturity, into the image of Christ. Now, I mentioned that today is a special day in the season of ordinary time because today is Trinity Sunday. It's a unique Sunday in the church calendar because it's one of only a, a few Sundays that commemorates like a doctrine or a reality more than a person or, or an event that happened, like Pentecost. You know, that's a day where the Holy Spirit came. And the reality is, who doesn't like talking about the Trinity? So fun, super easy to understand. One of those basic ideas that we all like feel very confident about. Not at all. Uh, we tend to know that the Trinity is one of those, you know, it's an essential doctrine of our faith, but if I asked you, could you explain the Trinity to me, you'd be like, um, pass, right? You know, can't someone else answer? You're getting a little bit sweaty. And, and even beyond trying to explain it, if we you know, think about how this idea, it's, it's central to this faith that, that we ascribe to, and then we think about how does the Trinity influence my day-to-day -day life of faith? Shoot. I'm not really sure how to answer that. You know, that's tough to think about. Uh, Richard Rohr has a book called The Divine Dance, and it's very formative in my understanding of the Trinity, and he kind of poses this thought. He says, if the Trinity is supposed to describe the very heart of the nature of God, and yet it has no practical implications in most of our lives, we might be missing something. As luck would have it, I actually also preached on Trinity Sunday last year, and I looked back at my notes, and I said something at the beginning of the sermon about the Trinity, about this day on the church calendar. I said, you know, something along the lines of, hey, if you talk about the Trinity too much, you end up talking about heresy. And then I just, like, moved on and pretended like we didn't have to talk about the Trinity anymore, and so, which was fine. I'm sure you all remember my amazing sermon after that. Um, I'll be checking your notes later. But this time, we are not skipping over the Trinity. Okay? We're not taking the easier route, we're taking the hard, way, the hard way, and we're going to talk about it here for a few minutes so you can hopefully have some handholds to understand this kind of endlessly complex, complicated, while at the same time simple component of our faith. To do that, uh, we first needed to talk a few moments about analogies or metaphors, you know, when we use comparative tools to shed light on complex subjects. We all do this all the time, you know. Someone goes by, you say, hey, that guy drives like an animal, right? Uh, you want to indicate that this person is driving aggressively. You know, they're going really fast on the road. Uh, so when someone says that, we know what they mean. Or we might say, you know, life is like a box of chocolates. 
Forrest Gump, right? Yeah. And if you are a grammar nerd, and Marsha, I'm looking at you, I know that those are both similes, but just stay with me here. Um, whatever the metaphor is or whatever the analogy is, uh, whether you're a kid or even as an adult, many of us have been told specific metaphors to try and better illuminate the Trinity. Unfortunately, most of these examples that we've been given end up falling apart, and they actually kind of end up becoming heresy, like in the literal sense, pretty quickly, which is generally not ideal. But So what better time than right now to learn some heresy, okay? So maybe someone told you that the Trinity is like a three-leaf clover. Anybody hear that one? Yeah, three-leaf clover. Maybe like an egg, okay? So you've got three parts. You've got three clovers and the three leaves in the clover, or you got the egg shell, the egg white, the egg yolk, right? And so that uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're each represented by one of these parts, one of these leaves of the clover. And when you put all those leaves together, you have a being, which is God. The problem with this metaphor is that neither Jesus, nor God the Father, nor the Holy Spirit are fully God without the other components. They're only partially God. And so this heresy is known as partialism. You can tell everyone about that. That each of the persons is only, persons of the Trinity is only part God and not fully God on their own. So clovers, eggs, there's apples, whatever. Whatever your youth group leader told you about this, this one isn't gonna cut it for us, okay? So uh, maybe someone's told you that the Trinity is like water. You know, it's like a solid form, liquid form, gas form. Although the, the water changes forms, it's all still water. The problem with this metaphor is that God is no longer three distinct persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they, it merely appears in different forms at different times. Water cannot be solid, liquid, and gas at the same time, and so this heresy is known as modalism. This denies the uniqueness of the three persons of the Trinity, and it merely, it merely makes each person of the Trinity just kind of a different mode of God. It's as if they put on the mask of the Father or the mask of the Son or the mask of the Spirit. So again, not going to cut it for us. Uh, maybe someone told you the Trinity can be represented by the Sun, you know, like S-U-N. Normally we talk about the S-O-N, but S-U-N in the sky. And so there's the Sun, and then there's the light that comes from the Sun, and then there's the heat that comes from the Sun. The sun represents God the Father, the light represents Jesus, and the heat represents the Holy Spirit. Well, the problem with this one is it makes the Father the only true divine being, and the Holy Spirit and, the Jesus, and Jesus are merely just products of the sun. They're not on the same level. This is known as subordinationism. I can never say that word, subordinationism. It comes up a lot in conversation. Um, <laughs> also known as Arianism, and again, this does not work for us. So uh, the reality is the Trinity is hard to explain. It is a completely unique idea, and I, and I have yet to find a metaphor that doesn't shortchange our understanding of the Trinity or make us think kind of incorrectly about how the Trinity actually exists and operates in our world. And to be clear, I'm not dismissing the idea of like partially true metaphors. I tell, you know, probably one story per sermon that's only, you know, partially true, if you think about it theologically, all the way through. But uh, hopefully, some of these metaphors about the Trinity have, have shed some light on a complex topic because we have to understand that there's mystery involved in this, and we have to appreciate that mystery. But I do want to show one image that is at least a helpful starting point 
for an orthodox understanding of the Trinity, and that's this one. This is known as the Trinity Shield, which is, I think, an Avenger uses one of those. But uh, the Trinity Shield, or the Trinity Triangle, it articulates what we believe about the Trinity. You can see God there in the center is the Son, is the Father, but these beings of the Trinity are not each other. They are unique. And there's something called the Athanasian Creed that talks about how the Trinity, each member of the Trinity is uncreated, limitless, eternal, omnipotent, but also united in one being. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are three distinct persons united in essence, which to me, this language of persons and beings and essences still feels pretty petty and not super easy to understand. So I like how Heidi Russell, who is a theologian and professor, how she talks about the Trinity. She says uh, this language of beings and persons and essence, it's not super helpful for us as 21st century Christians, but she says it's better to understand uh, the Trinity in moving towards the concept of God as love. For her, the primary analogy of the Trinity then focuses on these three phrases, the source of love, the word of love, and the spirit of love. God the Father is the source and the originator of all love that exists. And the source of all love has been revealed in the word of love, in the person of Jesus, which is then continually enacted in the spirit of love, which is present in the world and active in the hearts of all believers forming the Christian community into the body of Christ. Now, like I said before, Richard Rohr, he talks about the Trinity as a divine dance. He draws on the Greek word perichoresis, and, and Rohr says that we need to move away from our static understandings of the triune God and instead see the Trinity like a divine wave, as the, as the life force of everything flowing through us and all creation. He says, while the number one is lonely and, and two can be oppositional, the, three, the number three represents a moving, a dynamic, and generative flow. Then the midst of this relationship of love between God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, or the source of love, the word of love, and the spirit of love, we are invited to participate in this divine dance. Says so there can be three, there can be four, five, or there could be six billion folks to participate in this divine dance, to connect in with this dynamic flow and live out our lives out of that relationship for the purpose of relationship. That in this loving relationship, we can be in loving relationships ourselves. Last image I'll show you on the Trinity is an icon created by Andre Rublev in the 15th century, and I was showing Kit my slides, and it turns out Pete has used this image before, so I guess that means we're buds, but uh, it is a pretty famous icon uh, depicting the Trinity around the table. Uh, but one thing you'll notice, it seems a bit out of place, and I don't know if you guys can see it on the TV, but there's a, a small rectangle on the front of that table, kind of underneath the chalice. And many art historians believe that at, that at one point, a mirror occupied the place where that empty rectangle is now. That as people would use this icon to contemplate and to pray about the triune God, they would see themselves in the midst of the Trinity. That if the Trinity is here sit, sitting around the table together, you would see yourself sitting at that table as well. That you would be participating in this divine meal or this divine 
dance. So my hope is that as we begin to understand this relational trinity of love that is always dynamic, we can see that we can enter into and be a part of this powerful relationship based on love. And our text today talks specifically about the member of the trinity we like to ignore the most, the Holy Spirit. Uh, if you are an Encanto fan, we would say, you know, we don't talk about the Holy Spirit, right? Instead of Bruno, but... We might not say it out loud, but for many of us, we tend to think the Holy Spirit's pretty weird. Or it's confusing. You know, it's kind of ethereal. We're not really sure what, what's going on. Or we might think about our church friend who goes to another church and they do weird stuff. Or that person is weird and always talking about the Holy Spirit. Or we've, maybe you've heard it called the Holy Ghost, right? And you're not super into scary movies. Um, so let's look at our text for today to see what we might learn about this often ignored person of the Trinity. The text says this, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from what he will receive from me what he will make known to you. So that's pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> um, no, very uh, confusing. So I had to read this through like 10 times before I could understand what was going on, but couple things. First, it's not hard to see why this particular passage has been chosen as the gospel text on Trinity Sunday. It addresses the relationship between the Father, who is said to have all that belongs to the Son, and the Son, who is said to have all that belongs to the Father, and the Spirit, who takes what belongs to the Son and declares it to the disciples. Just that easy, right? Uh, there aren't that many explicit references to the Trinity in the gospel, so this is definitely one of them. And, and more specifically in John's gospel, uh, the way that he discusses the Trinity is that Jesus makes known the Father, and then the Spirit interprets what Jesus has already made known about the Father to the disciples, to the church, and then eventually to us. These verses are a part of what's called Jesus' farewell discourse. Basically, the things that he thinks it's important to tell his disciples from the Last Supper up until his arrest. In this farewell discourse, uh, love is certainly the overarching theme. Jesus talks about it consistently throughout these chapters. He starts with expression of love, of washing the disciples' feet. But one of the things that he does is he tells the disciples five different times how his departure is actually a good thing because it means the coming of the Holy Spirit will actually be better for them. And while the disciples don't fully know all that they are about to see and experience with the arrest, the trial, and the crucifixion of Jesus, they are probably already a little afraid, a little confused because probably talking amongst themselves, you know, why does Jesus keep saying that he is leaving? Where, you know, where is Jesus going to go? Why does he keep talking about, you know, after I'm gone or after I leave, what is going to happen to us? You know, people have seen us with Jesus. What, what is going to go on? So with that in mind, we see that Jesus' words about the Holy Spirit are, are a bit different in this passage than we might experience in other places throughout the New Testament. There are no, you know, spiritual gift lists that we, you know, we put into organized inventories like we find in Paul's letters. There's 
no direction for specific actions attributed to the Spirit like we might find in the book of Acts. Instead, the Spirit is described as a sage-like presence that will care for and guide the entire community after Jesus departs, offering exactly what these disciples need in this moment of great anxiety. They're worried about what's going to come next. They've been used to the consistent presence of Jesus, and he tells them that the Holy Spirit will do the very same thing for them. And one of the other things that stands out to me, especially in context of our understanding of the Trinity as the divine dance, is actually how this passage puts us in relationship with the Trinity. And again, I know this passage is confusing and strange, and again, I had to read it over and over because my eyes had glazed over. But if you look at the subjects that are present in this text, and we're talking, again, parts of speech, nouns and pronouns, uh, that are present in this text, They go back and forth, and it reads like this. It goes, Jesus, us, Spirit, us, Spirit, Jesus, Spirit, us, Father, Jesus, Spirit, us. So we see that in this loving circle of God, this divine dance, it draws us into itself and moves us out into the world with it. Mita Stamper is a pastor and a theologian in England, and I love how she describes this passage. She says, this passage paints a picture, of the, a picture of the eternal love flowing from the one who sends, so God the Father, to the sent one, God the Son, to the Spirit who dwells in us in abiding love and makes us love bearers for, in, and with God, sent out ourselves into the world to bear witness to it with our love. We'll read that one more time. It is a little confusing, but she says, this passage paints a picture of the eternal love flowing from the one who sends to the sent one, to the spirit who dwells in us in abiding love and makes us love bearers for, in, and with God, sent out ourselves into the world to bear witness to it with our love. That this relationship of love that is interacted between the members of the Trinity, we are invited to participate in that for the sake of sharing and embodying that love with the world around us. And I like what Jesus says to the disciples. He says, you know, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And maybe it's just me, but sometimes I just laugh at what Jesus says, um, which is probably a bad thing. But he's like, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. And it's like, Jesus, these guys haven't been bearing what you've said for like five chapters and two years or whatever. They don't know what you've been talking about. They don't know what is going on. Now you're going to tell them more that they can bear. Okay, all right, sure. Um, and this Greek word used for bear here, it's, it's used in other places in the New Testament. And it speaks about bearing a physical weight. It's used to describe Jesus as bearing the cross. And Jesus recognizes that the disciples cannot bear all that he is saying to them. And he reassures them, and ultimately he reassures us, that the truth-bearing spirit will carry it all for them and guide them into the truth of God. Because the reality is that the teachings and the life of Jesus, they have been too much to bear for every Christian community that has formed since he spoke these words. And for every Christian and for you and me, it has been too much for us to bear on our own, to live that life, to live that way, to embody it, which is why we need the Holy Spirit to guide us. 
Uh, as many of you know, I have a nine-month-old at home. Actually, I think she might be outside right now. But uh, Penny, she loves to eat. And I brought a picture to prove it, okay? How cute is that? She is so cute. Very ordinary, yes, yeah. Um, she's extraordinary. She loves fruit. She loves pasta. She loves applesauce. She loves hamburgers. She's loved pretty much everything that she's eaten except for tofu. And as I constantly remind her, her mom made her eat that, not her dad, okay? So um, with this eating penny, she is fiercely independent, though. She wants the food on her tray, you know, and she wants to feed herself. She doesn't like for you to, you know, the train or the plane, none of that works, okay, right? She wants to feed herself. But with things like, you know, applesauce and oatmeal, that can get a bit tricky. She's not fully ready to handle a spoon on her own. So, you know, she takes it, she feeds her eye, you know, she flips it on the wall, right? She's not fully ready for that. And so what I do is I, I take a scoop of whatever she is eating, I hold it out for her to grab and feed herself. I let her grab it. I let her think she's in charge, okay? But before I let it go, I guide the spoon to her mouth so that she actually is gonna eat something. She's still holding it. She doesn't really know that I'm still holding on. She thinks that she's feeding herself, but I guide it there so that she can actually have something to eat. And generally, I try to avoid making myself a part of the Trinity with illustrations, but um, <laughs> in this moment, this is a little bit like what the Spirit does for us, okay? Penny doesn't notice it. She doesn't know that I am guiding this spoon, that I'm helping her experience sustenance, or in this case, all truth, right? Guiding her to what she really needs. I help her when she's not aware of it. And that's what the Spirit does for us as our guide as well. It helps us even when we don't know what's going on, even when we're not aware, aware of it, the Spirit is guiding us in the divine way of love. And the Greek word used for guide here in the text, it, it includes not just guide, but includes the word for way. So we see that the Spirit guides us into the truth of the way. Does that sound familiar? points back to what Jesus says about himself two chapters ago. He describes himself as the way, the truth, and the life. That when the Spirit guides us, it, it doesn't guide us towards a set of instructions or predictions about the future, but towards a relationship with a person. And that person is Jesus, the word of love. I know for some people, one of the sticking points of this passage is you know, it says spirit will guide them into all truth. It can sound a little bit like, what's this new truth that I don't know about or truth beyond the word made flesh? But I, think, I don't think that's quite right. What this dialogue recognizes is that the message and the meaning of Jesus will require ongoing interpretation. That between when Jesus said these words and now, circumstances have changed and new questions have arisen. And we don't have to be afraid of that. Because here's the thing, you know, John's gospel presents two realities about how Christianity is to relate to its past and its future. The first is that the revelation that took place in and through Jesus is absolutely fundamental for our Christian identity. It is the foundation. But the second is that as fundamental and eternal as Jesus' revelation is for us, 
The world has kept turning and changing from that time in the church, and you and I must live out our faith in the midst of social, cultural, and global changes. And that's not so daunting because the Spirit serves as the ongoing presence and revelation of Jesus. The Spirit makes it possible for us to understand Jesus in our own time. And for that understanding to evolve is not bad but it's a sign of trusting the Spirit to reveal more about Jesus, reveal more about the triune God to us as we develop the capacity to bear more. That as we stay committed to the truths presented in Scripture, we might just find the Spirit leads us into new ways of understanding and seeing the world. You know, we've done that recently at Antioch in our uh, understanding of how God equips both men and women equally in leadership, that the Spirit has guided us into a fuller expression of truth and how our community can better embody the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean that we are crazy or doesn't mean that we are abandoning our faith. It means that we're open to the Spirit working in and through us. And talking with many of you, that has been the journey you are on, that you may see things in a different light than a year ago, three years ago, five years ago, 25 years ago, 50 years ago. Whether that's issues of theology or justice or formation or even love, that your understanding has evolved because the Holy Spirit has guided you into a deeper truth as you have sought after the ways of God. And if I may be so bold... If your faith has not evolved or changed at all, it's when you first encounter Jesus, you might be closing yourself off to the work of the Holy Spirit. So on this Trinity Sunday, when we've talked about two things that we like to avoid, right? The Trinity as a whole, or more specifically, the Holy Spirit, my hope is that you have had a fresh encounter with this triune God that in our text today, we we see the intimate connection and dance between God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Spirit of Truth. But even more than that, we see that this this is more than just a heady theological idea. Instead, we are invited to participate and to be formed in that divine dance. And so when Richard Rohr asks, you know, what are the practical implications for the Trinity in our lives? This is the answer that we can see ourselves in the community of love that is the Trinity, and we can live out of that love in the communities that we inhabit ourselves. That the very same love that exists in the Trinity can exist in the relationships that we have with others. And we can share this love with the world, and we can lean into and embrace the mystery of the Trinity. We don't fully understand it. These metaphors don't quite really work, but as we embrace the mystery, we can see the change in our ordinary lives. And more specifically with the Holy Spirit, it's that we don't see the presence of the Spirit as some type of you know, reward for good behavior or for unwavering faith, but instead a gift to those who seek after Jesus and wait on him. So Antioch family, may we be a people who participate in this dynamic divine dance by letting the source of love, the word of love, and the spirit of love invade ourselves and our lives to demonstrate the depths of love to the world around us. Amen. One of the ways in which we will participate in this divine dance and sit at this divine table is through the practice of communion. So Cal is going to come up and lead us through that now.